That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. As K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend Just Keeps On Trucking. by enjoying the pop culture of their youth. Devin, are you ready to hang out with a bunch of criminals, rob a bank, go undercover, cut a guy's ear off, get shot in the gut, and be really cool doing it? You know what's interesting about that question, Jeremy, is about (laughs) two and a half years ago, people would have freaked out if you would have had on sunglasses and a mask walking into a bank. And now they're freaked out if you're not wearing a mask if you walk into a bank. So I, I think I'm ready for this. I am ready I, to put on a mask, put on my my Ray-Bans, walk into a bank, and just see what happens. <laughs> it's time, man. We can do all sorts of things now. It, we're greenlit for Robin Banks. Yes. yes, we are good to go. Hey, it's the 30th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs this year, and we thought, what a better um, episode of Living in the Past than to cover this pretty important Quentin Tarantino movie. It's his first uh, film. He made one that like never was released. And uh, so this is really his first actual movie movie. And uh, it's weird to think, Devin, this is the 30th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. Which is is weird because I don't feel that I've aged 30 years since seeing this (laughs) film. So it's kind of wild to think that I've aged more than half my life since I've seen this film. That's that's, that's perspective for you. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> it is crazy. It's totally crazy. I, I'm just glad that you chose a, a family friendly film that we could finally do and bring to a wider audience. So gather the kitties around. We're going to talk about Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> We're going to have like 15 people listen to this episode. It's all like probably all men. Yeah, probably our age. Um, yes. That that all for some weird reason, like the, the ear getting cut off scene. Um, yes. Yes. When'd you first see it? When'd you first see Reservoir Dogs? Uh, in 92. Uh, it was in, yep. in the theater. And I just remember going into it. You know, the, for those of you that haven't seen this film, I'm always like when we do these, Jeremy, I'm always hesitant to like say things, even though like 30 years after a film, like there shouldn't be yeah. spoiler alerts. Right. But right. 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 It, spoiler alert. Like I, I was totally fooled on who would survive. I, I, mm. I, my pick was not Mr. Pink. I will tell you that. And, and <laughs> yeah. so that for me was a, a nice twist and really, and I know we're going to talk about the impact of, of Tarantino just on Hollywood right. in general, but like this particular film was so very different than anything that I had seen personally up yeah. to that point in time. So there's a special place in my heart for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I had heard about it. I heard about the movie. I I was I was that guy. I was the guy that would go into the Barnes and Noble or the Borders bookstores or 
Books a Mill, whatever the hell bookstore was in your neighborhood. And I would go in there and read. I, I believe it was um, B. Dalton. B. Dalton, yeah. I think. Walden Books. B. Dalton. And I yeah. would be in there reading Premiere, Movie Line, Entertainment Weekly, whatever the magazines were. And I just remember just, I think it was a Premiere magazine and uh, yeah. coming across an article about this movie coming out uh, called Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, I have to see it. It never showed in... Tuscaloosa, Alabama on the screen, but the DVD or the videotape release was, was right. Or like it was in 92 or early 93. So I saw it immediately once it was out on, on, on tape, I was picking it up from blockbuster and, and watching it. And I watched it with a buddy of mine and we were like eyes wide open going, what (laughs) if we just experienced this was good, right? It, It took us a while to just process everything um because it like you said Devin, it was so different and yeah yeah extremely violent and um yes it, it was yes. it was uh quite a surprise so tarantino is sort of this um and we'll talk about we have a patreon episode that talks about pulp fiction and and tarantino in general uh coming up uh in the future but tarantino really changed things in cinema in the 90s mm. like yeah so many freaking people imitated him. And, uh, but his knack at writing amazing screenplays, um, I don't, I think it's unparalleled. Even today, I don't think a lot of people can write as well as he does. Uh, yeah. and, um, he wrote the script in 90. So October of 92, years before it's released, uh, nationally, um, he, he wrote the script. And he wrote it while he was working. This is the story everyone knows. If you're somewhat of a fan of Tarantino, you know this story. He wrote it while he was working at as a video store clerk in Manhattan Beach, California. And, mm. uh, you know, he he initially planned to direct Reservoir Dogs on 10 grand budget um, with a buddy of his. They were going to do this together. But things started getting out. And the the news of the screenplay got out. People started talking. There was a buzz around it. And Mm. uh, someone that knew someone that knew someone, basically it's Hollywood. It's, it's a smaller town than you realize when, when it, when it comes to who knows who the script got in the hands of Harvey Keitel, the great actor that was in a lot of Scorsese movies. And Keitel's like, I want to help make this happen. And, they're off at that point. And so um, Harvey Keitel saw something. I mean, he worked with a young Tarantino. I mean, he worked with almost a who's who of the great 70s, 80s directors. Right. And yeah. Harvey Keitel is, am- is amazing in this movie. He plays, you know, one of the gangsters known as Mr. White or Larry. Um, and so he's... <laughs> He's great in the movie, but he has this perspective that I I really appreciate. And I was doing some research for the movie, Devin, and I came across um, an interview with him talking about Tarantino. And here's here's a clip from that interview. You worked with a lot of first-time film directors. How would you compare Quentin's work with other first-time directors? Well, who comes to mind are Martin Scorsese, firstly, and... Um, uh, Jim Toback, whom I forgot to mention some of the other interviews, first-time director, and um, Ridley Scott, uh, 
There's a certain common denominator these people have that's, uh, how would you describe it? They sort of are intense people with the need to uh, descend into that place where they can experience things uh, that are difficult to experience and confront and uh, learn from them. Quentin is one of those young, young men. I don't know about you, Devin, but when you're being compared, yeah, he's kind of reminds me of Ridley Scott and Martin Scorsese. Yeah. It's like, yeah, holy shit, you know, is yeah, is he and one of the I best? Out of that, Jeremy is is not only that, but like <laughs> Harvey guy telling just scares the piss out of me, even if he's in an interview, man. Like, I don't want to get on his bad side. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube, and it's it starts off a little uncomfortable because it's a it's an unedited <laughs> interview. So yeah, you get I, them like getting the they they're getting the setups done like okay sound all that stuff and they like he isn't even talking to her like he's just yeah. sitting there and finally <laughs> she goes in and it's a little weird at first but then he he kind of warms up to her as the interview progresses and it turns out okay but uh yeah he's a he's a scary dude he's a scary dude is is Tarantino the the best of his generation ooh you know, I, I think for those that came to know Harvey Keitel through Quentin Tarantino films, yeah. I, I think that in so many ways he is overlooked and underrated by so many other people that rose to stardom during the 90s. Right, right, right. But my goodness, like you are mm-hmm. never going to get anything but an exceptional performance from Harvey Keitel. I, what I wonder, though, yeah. do you do any names of films with Tarantino in it, or at least, you know, that has a sizable role with Tarantino in it come to mind where he doesn't kind of fit into, to the category of character that we see him in Tarantino films. Ask that again. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. What? So, so, so we see him in Tarantino films, the, the, the yes, characters yes, that he yes, portrays yes, yes. within Tarantino films are kind of within this mold, right? Yes. Do any other films that he's in that are not Tarantino films, do you, do you see him break that mold? Because when I think of him, I always kind of yeah. just like, that's my default setting for Harvey Keitel. When I hear Harvey Keitel, yeah. I, I think of Reservoir Dogs. I, I think of Pulp yes. Fiction. I, I think of those brands of characters. Right. right. Yeah. And I think if I had to pick a movie, it's funny. There are two movies that jump out to me about that Harvey Keitel's in that are not Tarantino movies that there is a little bit of nuance. One, not so much. The first the first movie is he plays a pimp in Taxi Driver, and De Niro kills him at the end. And that's yeah. – um, he's a pretty horrible guy in that. And um, there is a tension between them. Um, that is unbelievable. He's also in a movie called The Piano, which mm. Jane Jane Campion made. Um, that is his performance is amazing in it, but it is so different than like Mr. Wolf and Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. And then one of the movies that just as I'm thinking, like he's in Mean Streets, mm. and he plays. He's the central character of Mean Streets, and. De Niro's the crazy one and mm. he's constantly trying to like calm De Niro down. Like, you know, and, and he, he plays this kind of like level guy. Um, whereas De Niro's all over the place, up and down, up and down, just emotional and getting them in trouble. And, and yeah. that's an interesting performance to juxtapose 
he and De Niro. Um, but Kaito taps into something in his movies that, like you said, Devin, it, there's almost this menace to him. And yeah. it's like, he scares me even in real life. Like there's something he can, and in one of the interviews, I don't have the clip, but it's, it's one of the interviews I came across. He, they said, he was asked, well, how do you prepare to play these characters? Mm. Cause he's also in like, mm-hmm. I think he's in natural born killers. Like he's in a, like he's in yeah. a lot. And yeah, this guy, this interviewer, poor guy's young. He's like, how do you like, who do you talk to? How do you prepare to to get it into these characters? And he his answer is like I don't. I it's just what I grew up in Brooklyn wow. like having interaction with. I know I knew these people. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like okay. Dang. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, and I gotta say, like, and I know we're gonna we're gonna focus primarily on Reservoir Dogs in this yeah. episode, but you know, one of the movies that I think so many audiences missed it and I, for me it's it's i need to go rewatch it because i truly love it but he's in this film called copland and yeah, talk yeah. about an all-star cast in that one if you haven't seen copland go watch that it's a must watch and in, in my yeah. very unhumble opinion yeah it's it's underrated it's phenomenal um so this is tarantino's debut um he it actually debuted at the Sundance Film Festival, and you could do a whole episode on Sundance and the influence. But right around this time in Sundance, um, Redford's like little like you know film festival just really starts to catch fire, and more yeah. and more people are are getting involved. But they were doing workshops there, and Tarantino workshopped things at Sundance. He got notes from like prominent filmmakers. Um, it, I think even in the credits, if you watch the credits, he like, he thanks different people that like gave him some notes on, Hey, try this, try that. Um, so he workshopped it at Sundance with some of the best filmmakers alive it's crazy. and it caught fire. Everyone was talking about it. Cause I remember seeing it in a premiere magazine months before it came out and everybody's like, this is the new guy. This is the mm. new filmmaker. He's, he's, you know, I think around that time, Another filmmaker that was like that was Steven Soderbergh. Uh, he made sexualized mm-hmm. videotape. He was also, mm-hmm. you would see him in the pages of these magazines. And Tarantino, there was such a buzz and a buzz about his writing, his stories, the violence. This is different. This is exciting. Um, and then everyone freaking imitated him. It was unbelievable. Yeah. 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 Is Tarantino the best of that generation? of those filmmakers of the early 19, 1990s um, that were kind of getting their start. I would put like David Finchner in that group yeah, uh, who made, you know, the social network and he's done a lot of right. stuff on seven. Yeah. Um, Tarantino, Soderbergh, um, Babe, I, maybe Christopher Nolan, I would maybe put in that group yeah. at age. Um, is he the best? I, well, so best is always subjective, right? I mean, I totally. think that, I, I think that it, let me flip that on his head a little bit. I think that if if we're asking the average moviegoer, right, more people could probably identify Tarantino films than some of the other writer yeah. directors that you've talked about, right? Um, so I think from that standpoint, yeah, I, I think that his his style of filmmaking was clearly different than the others that were out there, which is probably right. why his films tended to pop a little bit more. 
So I'm comfortable saying that, yes, he's the best of the generation, but I right. also would say that based on the fact that he was an expert at his niche. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, absolutely. But but what are your thoughts on that? Because quite frankly, like, it, and it's, you know, confession time here on Living in the Bass, but <laughs> when it comes to the, the, what I'll say, like the nuances of film, when it comes to writer, director, producer, stuff, like you, Jeremy, are far and away much more of a cinephile than I am when it comes to some of those nuances and right. ability to accurately compare and contrast. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, he's the best. Like he, I mean, uh, there's no, like, there's no, like, yeah, he's my apologies to listeners for wasting 37 <laughs> seconds trying to break it down. Uh, he, um, you know, there's obviously the backlash of like how some of his characters use the language they use. And then there's yeah. some people that the backlash against, you know, the violence in his films. Yeah. He's just playing on a whole other level though. Um, the yeah. way he structures, like Pulp Fiction, the way he structured that movie, mm-hmm. uh, he's, you see it in Reservoir Dogs where he's jumping around and giving flashbacks to tell the stories right. of the different, um, you know, characters like Mr. White, Mr. Orange, you know, you get Mr. I, you know, you get Mr. Um, is it blonde? You get his backstory. So you get all these like backstories and it's right. Um, just really cool how he does that. But it, it serves the story. It's not a gimmick. It makes the story right. even better. Pulp Fiction, yeah. same way. And he's, he's done that time and time. That's just one thing, the way where he places the camera and, yeah. and, and how he works with his DPs on, on the, on his movies and um, the, the screenwriting. And, you know, they were, there was all these interviews with the actors uh, leading up yeah. into Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, there was often a question like, did you ever ad lib? Rarely did they ad lib. There's a scene where, and we'll get into it later, but like where the police officer gets his ear cut off and, and right before that torture scene happens, he's, or no, right before he sets him on fire, like he's going to set him on fire. He says, please, I have, I have a, I'm married. I have a child at home. And you can hear, if you listen carefully, you can hear Tarantino off camera. They didn't take it out. Go, oh, man. Like, because that was a, that's one of the few lines ad-libbed and Tarantino loved it and kept it in. Um, And and so, but er, the actors would say pretty much everything is how he wrote it. Like, they're not. That's crazy. They're not deviating. They're not writing on set. Like, he's just such a masterful storyteller and, and I watched recently the hateful eight and I just couldn't believe how good it was. And it's just in this like mm. house in the middle of a winter storm. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. on the edge of my seat the whole time. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. he's just, he's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. I, and I think that, and, and so obviously deferring to your superior knowledge on the emphatic <laughs> yeah, response right. that he is the greatest <laughs> filmmaker of the 1990s. I, I, I love the fact that, you know, when I first saw Pulp Fiction, and you kind of touched on this too, but I was not expecting the language never really bothered me per se, right, but right. the amount of violence, like <laughs> that, yeah. that that's one of his like markers. Yeah. Because you look at you look at Pulp Fiction, you look at the Kill Bill series and and, and so many others, and just like, okay, we now I know going into it, I'm just like it's gonna be a one raw ride that I'm about yeah. to like strap myself in for. But yeah, I think that that's another thing that like audiences, it, it's it's the proverbial like train wreck. Like I, I, I kind of want to look, but I know that it's wrong to look. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. and so there's this like inner, inner conflict as a viewer going, Oh, I'm so mesmerized by what I'm seeing happening that I, I, 
I feel guilty for loving what I'm seeing. Well, yeah, that it's so crazy because you'll have moments not only Reservoir Dogs is a it has some rough moments, but like I remember, I distinctly remember when Marvin gets shot in the face in Pulp Fiction, and Travolta mm. says to Samuel Jackson, to you know, Vincent says to Jules, he goes. Oh man, I think I shot Marvin in the face and I'm like rolling in the aisle and I'm like, wait a minute, a guy just killed another guy by accident and I'm laughing my butt off and Tarantino, man, I, he's, he just, and another thing, and we'll talk about this on the, on the, what you're talking about Patreon episode, because it's so fun to talk about, but how he retells history Mm. to, I don't even know how to put it almost to he does this in um, once upon a time in Hollywood, obviously with Mm. what happened to Sharon Tate. And then, you know, he does this with, in a way with Django unchained Uh, he does it with um, Inglorious bastards, like how Mm -hmm. he just takes Mm -hmm. history and like retells it. Yes. I I don't know if you want to say to bring about healing or to bring about, a catharsis i don't know but he does this thing and it's like really different and i think with most filmmakers if they were to try to do that it would just be laughed at by an audience yet no one laughs at it when tarantino does it it's really interesting it's because they're scared as fuck of harvey Keitel coming <laughs> like clean up the mess like mr wolf's coming mr wolf's coming man you call him the wolf <laughs> um Reservoir Dogs, amazing. Some of you are like, wait, refresh, refresh my memory. What is Reservoir Dogs about? Here's Tarantino in an interview describing, like, here's the basics of the story. In a nutshell, it's a story about a bunch of guys who plan a robbery and everything that can goes wrong goes wrong for them. And the special thing about this movie, as opposed to other heist films, doesn't make it better than other heist films, but what's different about it is the fact that what would normally be given uh, 10 minutes in a, a regular heist film, basically. Okay, they sh- you know, showing up at the rendezvous and dividing the loot, and then something weird happens. All right. At any heist film you're going to see, it's about 10 minutes towards the end. I decided to make the whole movie about that, about those 10 minutes, all right? Basically, this movie takes place in the course of an hour. Take a little longer than an hour to watch because I keep going back and forth on the story as far as, like, in time shifts. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to take, like, the movie clock that is usually ticking away in most movies where like, you know, you're watching a character and 10 minutes pass, you go, well, it's been an hour and a half, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to take the movie clock out and put a real time clock in there. So every, you know, so like they're in their, this warehouse for an hour, so are you. Every minute for them is a minute for you. Every little bit of their anxiety is, n- cinema doesn't intrude and make things easier or smooth things along or move things along. You're stuck there with these guys in this claustrophobic, anxiety-ridden, pressure, uh, you know, very deadly situation with these guys for every second. And so uh, that's actually what the, the story's about in a nutshell. <laughs> I love it, He's dude. so weird. He is He's so weird. weird. Do I you know, I, I was watching another, I, I went, dude, I went down the rabbit hole with this one. And <laughs> I've, I've watched, like, 90% of the stuff I've read and watched is not going to make it in this episode, but I will say this. <laughs> he, um, he was at con the con film festival and they were like, well, what, what, what are your influences? This is in 92. Like, what are your influences for reservoir dogs? And he said the thing he said, wow. the anxiety, the, the, the claustrophobic vibe, these men stuck together, like in this awful situation, 
about to tear each other apart. He goes, wow. he goes, the thing by John Carpenter was like a huge influence on me making this movie. And mm. I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. That's so true. It makes a lot of sense how that could be uh, an influence. Of course, I adore the thing and I adore this movie. And it might be because of that. It's, I think it's a good right. storytelling device. You put very strong personalities that have a, a goal or something they're they're all wanting to get. And then you mm. just create this this tension around them being trapped. And uh, I, I love that kind of stuff. And it just creates, I think, a lot of interesting human drama, especially of good characters. So, Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I got out of that interview, too, is he talks about that real-time clock. And I think that, mm. you know, that that takes the intensity and and anxiety that an audience member should have and and ratches it up if if you're on that. And you know, one of the, right. it's funny that he he brings that up because that's one of the things that I personally loved of the the much later TV series that came out with 24 and with mm -hmm. with Kiefer Sutherland and that was very much the right. same ride as far as like it, it whatever minute he's living you're living. And I think that yeah. there's something to that that's kind of special. I let me put it this way. The way that Quentin Tarantino does it, it doesn't feel gimmicky. Yeah, I told it totally doesn't. And there are movies. There's a movie, I think it's called Out of Time. Johnny mm, Depp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So big name is in it. Uh, my brain is is foggy. Uh, I can see his face. But anyways, like uh, same thing. It's like 90 minute film. It's 90 minute real time. It was a gimmick. Yeah. It's not that great of a movie. Um, but there you have it. I mean, there are movies that kind of pull that and it's just, it's just a gimmick and right. this isn't that at all. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, I love Reservoir Dogs for that reason. What was really weird when I went down the rabbit hole was like, not a lot of people like this movie. I mean, at least there was, yeah, he's a good writer, but mm. you know, it's way too violent. And, you know, I, I was going through all of these film like reviews from 1992 yeah. roger ebert writes this he goes as for the movie i liked what i saw but wanted i wanted more i know the story behind the movie tarantino promoted the project from scratch on talent and nerve and i think it's quite an achievement for a first timer it was made on a low budget but the part that needs work didn't cost money it's the screenplay hmm Having created the wow. characters and fashion the outline, Tarantino doesn't do much with his characters except to let them talk too much, especially when they should be unconscious from shock and loss of blood. Um, <laughs> is Ebert right? Is he, like, way off? Like, this was not an uncommon critique of the movie. Who am I to Roger to argue with a Roger? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think he's wrong, but right. I think in very much the same vibe that like I I didn't leave the theater feeling disappointed. I yeah. didn't leave the theater feeling like, oh, had I only known more about whatever. Like yeah. I, I think within that time frame that Tarantino gives us, I think we get a gym of a movie. And, and I think yeah. so like to throw it back at, at Roger, I'd say like, okay, so if we're going to include that, does that mean we're going to expand our running time? Or does that mean right. that we're going to like have a very different viewing experience because we're delving into all those things. And so like, 
sure. I know we did Blade Runner uh, uh, yeah. recently, and we we talked about the director's cut and the ultimate cut and the final yeah. cut and all that. Yeah. And so maybe we need the Reservoir Dogs uh, Roger Ebert cut. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that was, well, obviously, based on box office, right, and the right. longevity of this film, like, it, it didn't hamper the overall success of the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what Ebert's thinking because the screenplay <laughs> is so electric and yeah. different. And yeah. when it came out, I'm like, I hadn't seen I. I mean, of course, I was a freshman in college when it came out. So, yeah. you know, I hadn't seen that much, right? But um, I knew when I was watching it that it was unlike anything I had seen. Mm. And it mm -hmm. felt fantastic and authentic at the same time. It, it's mm. really it's really strange. I mean, you, and of course, you have a cast to deliver these lines. You have Harvey Keitel, you have Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney. I mean, right. That lineup right there is just stunning to me. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I just, you have great actors delivering these great lines. And I think with each Tarantino film, um, the screenplays uh, just get better and better. I really believe that. Yeah. And then he keeps bringing on the talent to deliver that. And I just, yeah. I, I really love it. And, and I, Listen, it's weird. I have such admiration for Tarantino. He's not my favorite filmmaker. He's not probably even in my mm. top five. But what I see from him is unlike anything I've seen from anyone else. It's 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 very it's its own unique thing, and I really feel like I'm watching an artist make something that no one else really can make, even though a lot of people try. Um, well, so I think that's one of the things like we talked earlier. Like, is he the greatest of that yeah. generation? And I think that that's one of the things as a viewer, like we may not know exactly what we're going to get when we go see a Tarantino film to some extent. Right. But I think it's that other part is like, ooh, I know that it's going to have some twist to it that I'm not right. expecting. Right. Sure. It's going to be different where we can go see a Michael Bay film and we know that there's going to be you know, explosions and actions throughout, yeah. but there's rarely like a twist. Right. And I think the same thing is, is is true of so many of the other names that you mentioned earlier, but with Tarantino, like we know we're going to get language we know we're going to get violence to the nth degree but we know that there's also going to be some as you just said like some artistic filmmaking when it comes to whether it's that twist or how, how the 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 cinematography itself is done and yeah. so i think that that's one of the things it is it's his stamp right it's his right. signature his style right that we go and and see as as fans and viewers right Let's di let's dive in. I totally agree with you. Let's get into the movie and let's start walking through. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna yep. we're gonna start with scene one and let go through it. It's too much fun. All right, we're back. And so the movie starts off, and Devin, you know, we're talking about screenplay. We're talking about how unique uh, Tarantino is. Um, it's interesting. The way it starts is, let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my. <laughs> God, yeah. what am I watching? Um, so it's <laughs> L.A., uh, Joe Cabot and his son, Nice Guy Eddie, they've organized a six-man jewelry heist. Um, they're, they're all dressed in matching black suits. They're sitting around a table. They go by not their name, but by aliases, and the aliases are colors, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Brown, Mr. Blue. Um, and so uh, it's the morning of the heist. They're at a diner. They're having breakfast, and then Tarantino, who's playing one of the characters, 
explains what like a virgin's about. It goes from that conversation to um, are you listening to K Billy's Super Sounds of the '70s to then um, tipping, uh, and it's like, what am I witnessing here? I <laughs> I had never seen anything like it, and I was struck by just how different it was. Devin, what were what were your thoughts like when you saw this opening? Because this isn't like a movie that I had witnessed at that point in my life. Well, I think that's one of the things that we've already touched on when it comes to Tarantino films, right? Yeah. It's it it so many times when we have like these what I'll just call like these close quarter conversations with the characters on on film, mm-hmm. we we get an idea of the rhythm and the flow and the direction that the conversation is taking, and we're expecting it to take us somewhere. And with Tarantino, inevitably, we have these what I'll call just like very organic and quite frankly real conversations where it's just like one minute we're talking about this and there's just non sequitur to <laughs> something that's yeah. totally in this parallel universe. They're all of a sudden talking, talking about. And so I think, was I expecting this viewer? No, because I haven't been trained as a viewer <laughs> to expect such a thing. Yeah. And, and two, I think that that's, that's yet another nuance of some of the brilliance of Tarantino. And I think that it's like, Oh wait, whoa, whoa. And so for me, as a viewer, getting my bearings and having to readjust those bearings, I think is like one of the things that kind of makes you go that all of a sudden I'm trying to catch up with what's going on. Right. right? Like, and, and I think that that's kind of a fun thing to do as a viewer when it's done well on screen. Right. What about you, though? Because <laughs> as you mentioned it, like that, that is a definite shift. I well, it starts off where you hear Tarantino's character go, let me tell you what Like Virgin's about. And the credits are sh- are like, you don't even see the guys yet. Right, and right. and then he goes into starts explaining and slowly fades in. You see this guy and he's taking the camera and he's just, it's this 360. He's going around the table as these guys talk. Right. And yeah. it is such a, it's not a normal conversation. That's not what I'm trying to say, but it's 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 a conversation that doesn't, fit what you think it you don't think six guys or however many are that are going to go rob a jewelry store or jewelry like warehouse you don't think right before they do that they're going to talk about like a virgin and true blue right and then talk about then get into it and then get into a semi-argument over tipping which is equally funny and weird and and off-putting right and so yeah I immediately, and Tarantino, he wins up. It's almost like he comes out like in a boxing match and he like, he switches stances and goes southpaw. And you're like, wait, why? You never have gone southpaw before. Throws a couple of jabs, Madonna tipping. And then he throws a cross and in this other stance and it's freaking Tim Roth in the backseat bleeding to death. And you're like, what am I watching? Like, what is going on? And it's, yeah. it's just, it's stellar. It's different. Um, do you agree with Tim Roth's character or not Tim Roth, but Steve Buscemi's character's philosophy on tipping or are you a tipper? <laughs> well, having spent, I don't know, about seven years in the food industry, <laughs> including during the time of my life when I was watching this film. Yes. Um, I've gone back and forth. I, <laughs> man that this this is a monologue that should have been like a patrons only thing um <laughs> here's my philosophy on tipping um so long as we're doing tipping in the united states okay and it's a thing 
then I, I, I consider myself, I, I self-identify Jeremy as a um, very good tipper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also realize that when I'm doing that, I'm very often just meaning that I'm, I'm feeding the beast of an employer that's just not paying <laughs> wages mm-hmm. to his workers or her workers. Yeah. Um, and so the older I've gotten, I, I kind of lean toward that European philosophy of tipping, like you don't do it, mm. but, but I, I would never go that way because I know until employers actually bring up their wages for right. wait staff and the cooks and the, the dishwashers and stuff, then, then obligated is too strong of a word to use, but like, but I'm, but I'm still on board for, for the little, um, carousel ride that we go on though. So yeah. yeah. What, what about you though? Because one of the things that I, I really want to know about this topic from you, you actually spent a good time of your, of your life living out of the country. Mm, so mm-hmm. h- how have you kind of juxtaposed those two parts of your life with where you're at now in these old here United States? Right. Yeah. I, it never, like it was never a super big issue when I lived overseas and, um, yeah, and just never thought about. It. I was never in a lot of situations where I was dining out in nice establishments or even average <laughs> establishments where I had to think about it. Um, but in the states, I waited tables, and my mm. wife uh, even longer than I did, and so mm. um, have both of us having waited and have been in those situations. We're pretty gracious to the wait staff. Um, yeah. We'll even say things when we're when we notice, like we just notice stuff, like. We right. don't get pissed off easily. Um, right. So like if we get to sit down in the, in the you know, we're, we're sitting at our table and we, no one comes to get, get our drink order and we're waiting five, 10 minutes, we'll look around and go, well, is this waiter or waitresses? Are they, right. what's their section? Are they slammed right now? Oh, they are. They just got sat four tables all at the same time. Like we've been there. <laughs> right. And so, right. But, right. but when a, a waiter or waitress it has like no one, and they're just screwing yeah. around talking, yeah, dude. Like I, I've, and I'm not confrontational, but there have been times where I've, the waiter or waitress has come up, and I'm like, I will tell them, like, hey, like this isn't going well. Like you, <laughs> if we don't get better service, yeah. you, you like this. There's no tip. Like they're like, come on. Like I'll, I'll tell them, and. Um, right. I, I don't wait around for that, which is really out How of my does character. That go down. I want to know more about oh, that. How does oh. that conversation go down? There have been uh, normally when when my wife is with me, I won't do it. Um, but yeah. if it's just me or me and another, if it's another guy, and I yeah. I will say something. Um, I typically will eyeball the manager and try to see where, who the manager is. And sometimes I've gotten up and walked over and go, Hey, we've been sitting for like eight minutes and your waiter is just standing over there talking to the girl behind the bar. So I just want to let you know, I've done that nice. before. I've done that before. Nice. And he goes, we'll take care of it. You know? And, um, but <laughs> I, I'm normally super gracious of love tipping. Yeah. Um, so Steve Buscemi is, um, I appreciate the way he articulated his position. Uh, I yes, don't yes. agree with it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, um, I'm much more in the camp of, um, the, re- everyone else at the table, um, 
including Joe, uh, who's like, give me, give me, cough up money, you cheap bastard. That's uh, that's that's yes, kind of where I'm at. Yes, so, yes, um, I, I'm with you though, yeah. and I would, and I know that we need to move on. But like, I think the thing that bothers me most is because I, you just put it perfectly as far as like you notice what's going on. I, I listen. Keep my glass full. Whatever I'm drinking, yes. just keep it full. Yes. Okay? <laughs> Do not make me go through an entire meal with an empty glass that I purposely put on the edge of the table as a visual cue for you. Yeah. Just keep it full. All right. Yeah. Just keep it full. Simple, simple stuff. Just, just <laughs> get money if you do that. Um, right. So you go from them at the diner. Love it. Uh, you have the song, slow-mo walk to the car, Reservoir Dogs, title comes up. Um, Tarantino purposefully said he doesn't tell people what Reservoir Dogs means. People just come up with their own meaning for it. I like that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go from that to Mr. Orange writhing in pain in the back of a car driven by Mr. White. Blood is everywhere. And they basically are making their way to a hideout. But in the process, um, they, you know, Mr. White is like trying to calm Mr. Orange down. They get to the hideout. They, they kind of, dr- he's bleeding everywhere, gets him down. And that's when Mr. Pink shows up, Steve Buscemi. Uh, and you start to realize, okay, something, something not just, something didn't just go wrong. There was some type of setup and who's right. the rat. Right. And immediately, right. Right. And, and that the first time watching it, you're constantly like, Who's the rat? Who's the rat? Who's the rat? It's the fun of the first time you see it. Uh, yes. You know, other viewings, you know, it, it's Tim Roth's Mr. Orange. But that first time you watch it, you're like, who is the person? And the fact that Mr. Yeah. Orange has been shot and the way Mr. White describes it is like he took a bullet for me. It's like, well, he ain't it. Like, And so it's really I love that guessing game. Um, but my God, um <laughs> The gut shot is, I, I, I have no knowledge of, of gunshot wounds, period, other than what I've watched on TV. <laughs> but it seems like the, yeah. gu- the gut shot is the worst. Um, it would seem that way. Yeah. Um, and how much blood does Mr. Orange have? Is that even, <laughs> is that even realistic, Devin? Like my God. Mm, I, yeah. I don't know. I think, well, I think that that's like part of Tarantino's calling card, right? Because yeah. we see that in Pulp Fiction. We certainly see that in From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, Kill Bill flirts with that a little bit as well. And so I, I think that that's just <gasps> kind of like his yeah. calling card. Like, we're we're going to see an unordinary and abnormal amount of blood yeah. in a Tarantino film. Yeah. So I'm okay with it. I roll with it. Tim Roth, when they were filming, there was so much fake blood that it would, he laid there for so long for so many, you know, they were doing all these takes where he's just having to lay there that it would dry and he would stick to the floor. And so they would have to oh come in and just gosh. scrape him up off the floor. There's so much <laughs> fake blood. Um, I love also, Devin, like early on, it's it's the who is a reliable like witness here like who is yeah. Yeah. telling me the truth so there's this there's someone undercover maybe that's turned them in um what really happened because there there's a great scene in the bathroom where so mr orange passes out steve buscemi and harvey Keitel, mr white mr pink they go back into a bathroom and they're talking and they're 
piecing together what happened. And it's in that moment, it's like you as an audience member are like, well, wait a minute. They're not fully sure how the events played out. We do know Mr. Right. Blonde went crazy at one point, just started shooting everybody. Um, right. But when <laughs> right, did the cops right. show up? And I loved that aspect of it where I wasn't sure who to trust. Did you feel that way watching it? I, ask that again, Jeremy. I'm sorry. You can kind of like you're, you froze for a second. Yeah. So when, when they are talking, you don't know what's true, what isn't true. Um, yeah. And it, Always, it felt it made me feel like I was off balance. I love that. Did you like that about the story? Just that what's right, what's not right, what's going on here? Oh, yeah, right. Because, well, go back to the Tarantino clip you played, right? It's yeah. because, again, we're, we're adding that on top of the layers of real time and everything else. And it's one of those films, too, especially when you. You know, um, I, I believe was it um, was it was it Forner or or DeBarge that once said it's never as good as the first time, uh, or it feels like the first time. There, I know that's Forner, um, and, and I think that that that's one of the genuine yeah. um, joys of seeing this film in particular the first time because you are off balance, right? And what I what I love about that, yes, there's that experience, but that doesn't take away from subsequent viewings. Like so many times, you see a movie and it's like that one time you see it, and then when you know it's coming in, in subsequent viewings, it doesn't quite hold the, the replay value. But I think that this is a film that even though you feel less discombobulated right. in subsequent viewings, it's, it's still kind of a very exciting thing yeah. as, as a viewer, at least for me, it was though. Yeah. But, but what about you though? Is that one of the things that you're just yeah. like, Oh, I'm, I'm so in because it's like, I'm, I'm taken out of my comfort zone. <laughs> well, Tarantino does it the whole film. Like, you know, when we were talking about like at the diner, like they're having yeah. conversations and you're like, wait, this isn't, I don't, I'm not used to seeing gangsters about to pull off a jewelry heist, having a conversation about a Madonna song. Like it, you're just like, <laughs> right. it, you're off balance and you're continually off balance. You're off balance with the structure yeah. of the movie. You're off balance right. with who's telling me the truth, who's good, who's bad. Um, relatively right. speaking, they're all bad in, in a way, but, <laughs> right, um, right. and, and so I love, I love that about Reservoir Dogs and really all of Tarantino's movies are like that where you're, you're constantly, he keeps you off balance. And there's this tension in all of his movies that just exists. It's just there. Uh, Hateful Eight. Oh my right. God. The tension is just yeah. out of control. And I think that's yeah. one of the things he's best at. So you have that tension building between like Mr. Pink, Mr. White. And Mr. White actually almost reveals his name. But, mm -hmm. but Steve mm -hmm. Buscemi's like, no, no, don't, don't tell me. I don't want to know. And so, um, th there's that, okay, let's piece together what happened, um, who died, you know, that's when you start to hear about, um, you know, Mr. Blonde going crazy, uh, Michael right. Madsen going crazy. Um, and then you, and then you get a little flashback to where Mr. Pink's running. He unloads his clip on the cops. He gets away. Um, orange loses consciousness, um, they start to worry, okay, is he going to live or not live? And then you have this moment where Mr. White and Mr. Pink get in a fight and, um, right. they're arguing so much about what to do. Do we take Mr. Orange to the hospital? Do we not? If I like Pink's like, well, let's take him. He doesn't know our names. And then he's like, well, I told him mm. Mr. White's like, oh, I told him my name's Larry. He's like, what do you do? You know? <laughs> And so they get in a fight, and as they're fighting, Ma Michael Madsen shows up and, and is just like, 
he literally went to a fast food restaurant. Um, I think it's Big Kahuna Burger. I think if you look at the cup, it has the same design of the cup in Pulp Fiction. And so yeah, he's sitting there yeah. drinking a soda, having a hamburger and fries after he murdered who knows how many people. And it's just like, wh- who is this character? And yes, the tension just ramps up. Um, of course, Mr. Blonde has the great line. Well, here, let me play it. I think I have it right here. So as they're getting um, into it, Mr. White starts yelling at Mr. Blonde, just nonstop yelling. And this is how Mr. Blonde responds. I know what kind of guy you were. I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? <laughs> Good night. Um, is that the best line of the movie, Devin? I mean, that might just be the best line in cinema, Jeremy. I mean, who am I to back off of that? Good oh. night. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not going to bite. I'm not going to bite, Jeremy. I'll be really honest with you. Who is, the, who is the most interesting character to you in this movie? Oh, I, that's a tough question. Ask me which one of my kids I love the most. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like that. I, so I, I so I think that right, Kaitel always brings this high intensity laser focus right. on his characters. I, I think that this is probably my first introduction with Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's that. And then you know Quentin Tarantino, as he inserts himself in in the vast majority of his films, he's just such a weird dude. Yeah. Period. Yeah. That I, I'm not sure. Like out of those three. Those would be the three horses for me that I'll be like, oh, who's going to win this race? But like, right. I, they're so different. I they don't know. Are. I think, I I think that I I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Steve Buscemi just because yeah. the, I, he he for me because it's the introductory character that I see him portraying. Mm-hmm. I think there's just something special about him, and I I think I've become more a fan of him and his work than Tarantino as an actor, and maybe even Kaitel. I don't know. That's tough yeah. to say. But anyway, yeah. But what about you though? Yeah, it's. Um, I think, in my opinion, Harvey yeah. Keitel is the hero of the story. Um, mm. He's my favorite character in a way. I'm uh, with a caveat. Um, he's the most noble to me. I don't find Mister mm-hmm. Orange Tim Roth's character the cop. I don't. I don't find him like a good guy. I'm not cheering for him. Um, yeah. I cheer for Mister White. I cheer for Harvey Keitel. He you know, mm. he takes care of Mr. Orange. He has his own, he has this ethical code that he holds mm. to the whole movie and doesn't yeah. deviate from it. And I really like that character. Um, mm. The character that's mesmerizing, though, is Michael Madsen's Mr. Blonde. Um, oh, yeah. He, yeah. I am so, he is so terrifying. Um, and, <laughs> he's referred to like, cause like Mr. White earlier says he just started shooting up the place. You know, he he's like, I can't work with a psychopath. You know, he's like, okay, yeah, who is yeah, this yeah. guy? You get that yeah. flashback of his relationship with nice guy, Eddie played by um, Chris Penn. And of course, Joe 
And so you get that that kind of flashback. His name's Vic Vega. He is the in Tarantino world. Mr. Blonde, Vic Vega is John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction's brother. So they're brothers. Mm-hmm. And there was going to be a movie called um uh the the Vega Brothers, but they got too much time passed, they got too old, and Tarantino um you know, just kind of scrapped that project. But at one point there was going to be a movie, a prequel about them too. Um, nice. But he is um, terrifying. And yeah, he shows up. Um, nice guy. Eddie shows up and is like, we need to go get, we need to ditch these cars. We need to get rid of them. And Mr. Blonde, you stay here with the police officer who he, Mr. Blonde had kidnapped and he's like, you stay here with him. We'll go get move the cars, and we'll be back in, in a few minutes. And you go into this torture scene that is uh, – I couldn't watch it the first time I saw it, Devin. I, like, kind of looked away, mm. and I rarely look away, yeah. but it really yeah. disturbed me. Um, and yeah. for me, it's probably – if someone just goes, quick, Reservoir Dogs, what comes to mind? I'm like, the torture scene. Like, that's the first thing I think of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you react when you saw that the first time? Do you remember, like, your kind of emotional response well, to it? Yeah, I, I know our, our listeners are going to be tired of me saying this, but it's like it was so jarring to begin yeah. with. I Like, yeah. I, I didn't know what to think. I'd never seen anything like this on film. And I'd seen some pretty gnarly things on film to that point in my life. Right. And I think that that's a, a, another hallmark of the Tarantino world right and and remember when this comes out jeremy we're also at this weird point in history when it comes to pop culture and music and we've got this yeah this this congressional body that's trying to you know like put warning labels on albums and and all that stuff and so we're at a time where there's this culture war between like what's right and what's wrong for listeners or viewers to to partake in with or without a warning and and none of none of us were ready for what was going to unfold as far as like the graphic content of a Tarantino film. So it was very much this, this jarring thing, but I, I will say like, that's probably one of the, the first things that comes to mind too, when someone says, you know, reservoir dogs go. <laughs> and, and I think that like, there's one of the things that has that connection to Pulp Fiction is because, <laughs> is because when, um you know, whoops, because when when Bruce Willis escapes the torture scene oh, gosh, and, and yeah. it comes back, you know, and it's just like, oh man, yeah, I'm about to get medieval. On these <laughs> yeah, like, it's yeah, like, yeah, like those are the things that stand out for me in in both of those films. Yeah, there was a, a, a Harvey Weinstein who was a produ- like one of the producers of Miramax. You know, um, really like went back and forth with Tarantino, like do yeah, like cut this scene and toward Tarantino one, they kept it in. It's pretty iconic. I mean, it's so disturbing. I mean, he cuts the police officer's ear off. Yeah. All the while he's dancing to stuck in the middle with you, which is, I, I just, you can't make this stuff up except unless you're Quentin Tarantino and he takes the <laughs> ear and talks into the ear. Like, Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> What am I watching here? Um, I will yes. say this. Michael yes. Madsen really, to probably everyone's surprise, he really had a hard time filming the scene. And, mm. um, you know, a lot of people are like, well, he's just a crazy person to make this, you know. But yeah. um, Madsen yeah. really, really struggled. Um, and, and they had to do several takes. He had to, like, kind of 
walk away from it. Like it really bothered him. And when yeah. the actor ad-libbed the, you know, I have a wife and a kid at home, like Madsen really was like, F you know, like, come on, like, come on, don't do, you know, yeah. it was a really, yeah. he made a scene even more difficult. And, um, yeah, I, I think you leave the scene in because the payoff when Mr. Orange unloads his clip into him is pretty freaking awesome. Would you keep the scene in? <laughs> I just love how you refer to it as pretty freaking awesome. Uh, yeah, you keep it in. Yeah, why not? You got to keep it. You got to lose at this point. That's right. That's right. We're middle-aged guys. Let's keep that scene in. What we say goes. Um, yes. So you you keep doing flashbacks. Um, and, you know, I I really, because the flashbacks kept giving me background on Mr. Blonde and, and, um, you know, of course, Mr. Orange. Um, yeah, I, I, I started to like, kind of like feel sympathetic toward different people. Um, I think throughout the film though, I'm the most sympathetic to Mr. White. Um, he is my, you know, it's, this is Harvey Keitel's character. So yeah, we kind of start moving toward the end of the film. And so you, you get these, these flashbacks, and you get to the back to the present where white, pink, and nice guy Eddie, they return to the warehouse. They find Blonde is dead. Orange explains that Blonde went crazy and he was going to burn the policeman alive. So we shot him. Yep. Nice guy Eddie yep. is not happy because we know based on the flashback that he's very close to Mr. Blonde. And so right. um, uh, he just walks up to the police officer, Marvin, and just shoots him, kills the police officer. Um Orange continues to defend himself and nice guy Eddie isn't, isn't believing him. Um, and you just, it's this, it just keeps the tension just keeps amping up, amping up. Joe shows up and then you get this um, nice guy. Eddie is like standing there with his dad. Joe is Joe pulls a gun on Mr. Orange and basically says, Mr. Orange is the, I found out Mr. Orange is the cop and he's going to kill him. Mr. White pulls his gun on, on Joe and is like, no, you're not. And then you have this, you know, it's basically three way guns pointing at each other where you have nice guy, Eddie pointing his gun at Mr. White and they all start yelling and then they just all shoot each other except for one character. And that is Mr. Um, pink Steve Buscemi, your favorite Devin, who's hiding. Yeah, and he gets yeah. he gets away. Um, what do you think about that? That first, like, what the hell? If Joe knows everything's compromised, why did he even show up? <laughs> right, like that's one of my questions. Yeah. Like, yeah. if he knows there's a cop there, just like leave. Don't just don't eat. Like, call nice guy. Eddie has like this giant cell phone. Call him and like get away. Um, but he shows up right. and uh, they're screwed basically. Um, what that's do just, you that's just the that's the male ego talking, right? <laughs> that I'm gonna show up regardless. Yeah, I, I just, think so. I will somehow change things and make the outcome. Different. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, do you like the ending? I, I well, yeah, well, that's yeah, I, I. Yes. I I mean, and I question my own like ethics and morality yeah. when I say that, but like, um, I, okay. Do I think that, okay. Obviously it was not the ending that I was expecting as a first time viewer. Right. Um, I, I think that after you process that and you take it 
under the the macro view of the entire film, I think it makes sense. I, right. It it obviously brings things to <laughs> a definitive end for characters, right? That you spent the last ninety or so minutes with. Um, I yeah, I guess it reminds me a little bit. Uh, well, this whole film has has threads of a dog day afternoon yeah, with Pacino, yeah. and and I think that um, yeah, why not? Let's let's just well, fire our guns and kill everyone. Well, and 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 White doesn't die right away, so he's shot. He falls down next to Mister Orange, who's not dead yet either and blood's all over the place. And then Tim Roth's Mr. Orange does something really interesting. He tells white, I'm a cop. And mm. the cops are coming in like pink has escaped. Like he's trying to escape at yeah. least. Yeah. Um, and they're sitting there. The cops are about to burst in. If Mr. Orange just waits another minute like the cops come in they arrest him like arrest right. white or kill white get right. or, like he can live but instead he says i'm a cop and larry mr white rv Keitel just shoots him in the head and then the cops fire and they both die um right right tarantino was asked about that because i was super confused i'm like if if Mr. Orange just shuts up for sixty more seconds, he's he might make it. He might survive, and right. he doesn't do it. Right. And Tarantino says something really interesting. And and again, um, one of our patrons can really probably speak to this better. Um, Dave, if, if when you listen to this, like, let us know kind of what the the Asian, specifically the Japanese way of viewing this, would would be. But Tarantino said when the movie played in Asia. Um, Asians actually didn't have a problem with how it ended. It made sense mm. that Orange would tell Mr. White that almost like he owed it to him based on his actions. Like his almost like my life is yours because of what you just did. You need to know the mm. truth before we die or before I die or you die. Like, and so, but yeah. Western audiences are like, what are you thinking? You moron, keep your mouth shut and yeah. you're saved and you'll live. Um, so that, right. that for me, that's one very interesting, um, Tarantino has no problem with it. He says it makes complete sense to him. Um, apparently according to Tarantino, it makes complete sense to an Asian audience. Um, mm. I, I don't know. What do you think about that, Devin? Like, is it, did that ever, did that ever come across to you as peculiar? Like that orange said, Hey, I'm a cop right before the cops come in. I don't. I mean, not not to the degree that I think it did for for some folks. Right. I think for me, it was just like a wait, what? Yeah. But but I will say though, I, I think in going back to this point in U.S. pop culture history, right? Like we've got this is right around the same time that Ice T comes out with his infamous cop killer song, yeah. and so there's this. I mean, we talk about you know Blue Lives Matter today or whatever. Like what some folks that our our age Jeremy would probably remember is like there was this backlash right where like you you wouldn't you would not purposefully kill a cop and right, so i right. think from an american pop culture perspective this was very much through a, a magnified lens of like what is going on here that's unacceptable right, right. whereas you know 30 years later that it'd still be unacceptable to most folks and the, although i think other <laughs> other folks would be like well hell yeah i yeah. should kill him he's a cop yeah yeah um but it, it didn't have that jarring effect for me as far as like the morality piece. And I know even you, 
you describe kind of that that lens of looking through a distinctly Japanese culture mm-hmm. where there's almost like I'm, I'm guessing it has to do with just like the honor code yeah. and and this this confession of a, of a dying person. Um, I, I get that. And, and I think that that is not not only something that a, a Japanese audience would would understand. I think that there are folks that would probably see that as I and this is just maybe the human psyche, but and push back on this, Jeremy. Yeah. But I think like as as people come closer to their final breaths, I think there's often this opportunity to want to unload whatever burdens they right. may want to or right. are carrying with them. Right. In this case, it just happened to be his confession that he was a law enforcement <laughs> yeah, officer. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, it's weird. I, you know, I, I, I thought about that. I'm like, wow, that's interesting that he confessed that because it got him killed. Um, yeah. But I, I also kind of felt like those two characters had bonded um, mm. through the course of the film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, in many ways it made sense, but I couldn't articulate why. Um, yeah, it, It's just yeah. like these criminals had, you know, some sort of honor code or, or this criminal and this police officer had this type of code right. that they're trying to adhere to. Right. I, you know, if you listen you can hear what's going on outside. Um, a lot of fans suggest that Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi gets arrested. Um, he's not killed. You hear some gunfire, but you hear them say, get down on the ground. Like they arrest him. So it looks like he's the only surviving person, although he's going to be surviving in prison after shooting and killing police officers. (laughs) Um, he's going to be there for a long time. Um, well, Devin, we need to do something we haven't done in a long time, and that is oh. look back oh. on the music of the fall uh. of 1992. And yeah, that's right. Lock it in and for, rip for, for the knob off. For, I'm sorry. When you said we haven't done something, I thought you were going to refer to exercise, and I'm just not <laughs> down for that. Go ahead. Yeah, that, roll, that, roll the clip, that won't happen. That won't happen. Here we go. All right. So if you're listening to this show for the first time, thank you and welcome. And one of the segments that we do is called lock it in and rip the knob off. Basically what that is, is we pretend we are walking out of the theater in 1992 or whenever the movie comes out that we're talking about that day. And we ask the question, what do we listen to as we pull out of that movie theater parking lot? That sort of sums up some of our feelings about the movie or has some sort of connection to the movie. Uh, Devin, um, I need to preface this. Looking at the charts oh. of 1992, yeah. this movie came out. It was released nationally on October 23rd, 92. Um, music in the top 100, in my humble opinion, sucked. And uh, it was really hard to pick something. The question is, Devin, do you have something that you picked that you would listen to heading out of the theater? Well, this is this weird kind of gap in American pop culture music history, right? Like we hair bands are kind of on their on their last leg before they go like have this reboot in their legacy tours that they're doing now. And then um, (laughs) like what we knew is 80s pop wasn't happening. Right. 
but but at the same time, like grunge hasn't really taken hold yet. Yes. So it's this really weird, like just gap in in history. Yeah. But but I'm gonna go with something, Jeremy, that I think not only would be probably the song that I would be playing, um, but but also I think this particular song holds. Wait for it. It holds power for replay today, Ooh. and not just from a nostalgic point. I I think I I think that. That it that is still a powerful song. So so one okay. I'm gonna give you my my honorable tip of the cap to Guns and Roses, Cold November Rain. Okay, gonna gonna do that okay. because that I'm I am I'm obligated to do so. But I'm gonna tell you that <laughs> here's the song. It 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 is number twelve this week by In Vogue. Free your mind, Jimmy. Free your mind, and the rest will follow. Be colorblind. Don't don't be so shallow. Yes, yes, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked In Vogue. Um, I thought they were pretty. Um, just want to throw that out there. <laughs> There's that too. Yeah. There's that too. There's yeah. that. Uh, I'm going to cheat, Devin. Oh, yeah, I'm going to cheat. I'm not going to pick anything on the top 100. Uh, an album came out. <laughs> well, thank you for setting me up for yeah, failure. You, yeah, yeah, that's that. what I'm here for. <laughs> uh, you know, back at this time, and 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 really, it's more of a phenomenon of music today, but. Back then, 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 40 years ago, yeah. yeah, like we used to buy the whole album and listen to the whole right. album, and it was an experience. True. And today it's yeah. just we just pick songs and we don't listen to whole albums yeah. anymore, which is really sad. Right. Um, at this time in early October, REM had released Automatic for the People, it was in my mm. rotation. There is a song wow. on it that will be released in months to come uh, and, and move up the charts. Um, but it was on the album. I was playing the album. I loved this song. I was loving this song the week that Reservoir Dogs came out. And that is the song Everybody Hurts. So I would, mm. um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a CD player. Yeah, but um, in my car, but it wasn't in my car. It was one of those that I would hook up into my cigarette lighter and plug into some like my car stereo. Right. It was a cassette tape yes, with a wire yes. coming out of it. Right. And um, yes. so and it skipped all the time. But, you know, I would try to hit smooth <laughs> roads, but I would be listening yes. to Everybody Hurts as I oh. pull out of the um, wow. theater. Damn, that's depressing. It is. It's fun, though. <laughs> It's fun. <laughs> did, did you just sit in the car in the parking lot and just kind of yeah. cry a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it's a good that, breakup yeah. song. I probably had some breakup <laughs> around that time um, that I could wow. I could add wow. to it. Yeah, you know. Dang. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, so we uh, let us know, listeners, what you would think. Just uh, find us on that dumpster fire known as Twitter. Although, hey, Elon might be our savior on Twitter, Devin. What do you think about that? Oh, I mean, for sure. <laughs> Bet your bottom dollar on that. Happening. Yeah, everyone's going to be nice now. So <laughs> let's transition from <laughs> from locking into the rip, rip the knob off to there can be only one. So we'll go right to that. There can be only one. All right. So there can be only one. What is the single best thing? It could be a character, a moment, a scene. A line, um, the theme of the movie. It could be a song. What's the best thing about Reservoir Dogs, Devin? I think it's just the ushering in of the Quentin 
Tarantino yeah. era. Yeah. I, I think like th- this movie is just a, a in and of itself a preview for what's to come. Right. And I and I think like, wow, here we are. We're 30 years after the fact. We're still talking about it. If you're going to force me, and and I don't know why you would, since clearly you're not even playing by the same rules on your own freaking <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> but if you're going to force me to pick something <laughs> centric to this film, I, I just have to go with the the the, the clip that you played earlier. Like, yeah. you, you, you're going to bark, little dog, yeah. or you're going to yeah. bite. I mean, that's just. I how many times has that played in my head when I'm in like a faculty meeting? <laughs> <laughs> We should have that just queued up this next year, ready to yes. go and just hit play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, <laughs> it, it was hard to like, like, okay, there can be only one. It, it's so hard to pick. Um, I loved the fake story. Mr. Orange, the undercover cop, Tim Roth tells about the police in the bathroom in the bag of weed. So mm-hmm. if for those of you <laughs> listening, you might remember he like, he has to create this fake story to make him seem legit. And he tells this story to basically the crew that he's about to work with. And I just love the story and the way it's filmed. Uh, that's probably my favorite moment. But anytime Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen was on screen, I was pretty, not not just scared and uncomfortable, but captivated. I, I, I just felt like, who is this? It was the first time I thought I had seen him. And then I had a buddy remind me on like a second or third viewing of Reservoir Dogs. He goes, hey, wasn't he in The Natural with Robert Redford? And sure enough, Mm. he plays one of the the characters in The Natural. So that was the real first time I saw Michael Madsen. But this is the the memorable one. Um, Anytime he's on on screen, I was just totally into it, captivated, uncomfortable. Like, he's brilliant. He's wonderful in... um, Kill Bill Volume Two. Um, mm. it's just he's just great in that as well. Um, so, yeah. but if I had to pick a scene, my favorite scene is Tim Roth telling the the fake drug story. I absolutely I love it. I think it's great stuff. Um, all right, so that about wraps it up, Devin. This was a pretty uh, man. This was a pretty chunky episode. Um, hey, who are you calling? <laughs> well, if we're not going to exercise, um, <laughs> we have some problems on our hand. Yeah. Hey, we're going to, yeah. we're going to keep talking about good old Quentin, um, on our Patreon, uh, show what you're talking about. So that next episode is, uh, will be coming in the next few weeks. We'll be talking mainly about Pulp Fiction, but Tarantino's in general as well. Um, our next main show episode is Rocky Three, Devin. It's 40th anniversary. How are you feeling about that? Wow. Well, I I think um, I, yeah, that that's again crazy that it's 30 years. That's kind of wild. <laughs> it's 40. It's Rocky Three is 40? 40 years. Oh shit, that's oh, that's just scary. Then yeah. sorry, 40 years. I know. Oh yeah, Man. no. Um, yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. Then <laughs> um, I think that's gonna make me confront a lot of things in my life that I'm not ready to do, Jeremy. Uh, well, you know, there is exercise in that movie, so it could be a problem, like r- the running on the beach well, and, you know, that kind of stuff. If someone else is doing it, then I'm all for it, Jeremy. That's... <laughs> I'll watch someone else exercise. Yeah, um, yeah. let me grab my uh, trail mix and enjoy that <laughs> from a distance. Uh, so we got Rocky Three coming up on the main show. Also, uh, if you're interested in Patreon, uh, you can find us at patreon.com, uh, living in the past. Uh, we uh, just recorded... Uh, Carl, the intern, and I just recorded a weird science commentary track. It's there waiting for you all if you're interested. And we have another commentary track that's coming up. 
Uh, we've yet to record it, but it's coming up in the next month or so, and it's Independence Day. I can't believe I'm doing this. So if you want to uh, look into that, it's literally me just cussing for the two-hour runtime. Yeah. I yeah. freaking hate that movie. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I Carl's going to be on that. Maybe Devin's going to show up. Uh, and maybe you all listeners as well, just to see how much I hate Independence Day and why. Because there's a lot of good reasons that I will articulate on that commentary track. So, um, Do you think it was that one scene where Will Smith punches the aliens that he had in his mind when he was going up on the Academy Awards <laughs> yes. stage with Chris Rock? Was that Welcome to Earth. flashback from that movie? I yeah. think so. Yeah. I think he get, I think get my planet's name <laughs> out your mouth. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, listen. Um everything from dogs jumping out of fire like a out of the blast of an explosion to um <laughs> hey, remember me flying into the the mothership at the end. <laughs> The only reason yeah. I know all these is it's been yeah. seared into my brain. It's almost like a traumatic <laughs> moment that I can't forget. Yeah. And um, yeah. I've seen Independence Day twice, maybe. Um, and that second time was miserable. So I haven't watched it in I can't forever. wait. This um, is great. Yeah. This is great. I can't wait. I um I I think Jeremy, you are going to you might have to reverse some pretty hard line stances you've had as you rewatch this film. I, I think maybe this is this is your your coming out moment, Jeremy. You're gonna have some repentance coming with this. Uh, I might have a heart attack just because I'm having to watch it. So that's very possible. Very very possible. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. Keep an eye out on the feed, and uh, more episodes are forthcoming. Rocky three is the next on the main show. So thanks for listening and we will catch you guys soon. 